This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. Today's guest is engineer and author Ronald Stein, founder of PTS Advance and Energy Staffing Agency. Last time I interviewed Ron, it was he was in to discuss his re- then-recently published book, Clean Energy Exploration, co-authored with Todd Royale. Since then, Ron, as he always does, has been writing and monitoring the ups and downs of the energy industry and energy policy, uh, is particularly paying close attention to California, and that's what he's here to discuss today. Ron, thanks for being with us. Glad to be aboard, Sterling. So, Ron, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or PTS Advance, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, what PTS Advance does. Okay, a little bit about me. Uh, Ronald Stein, I'm a professional engineer. I'm co-author of the Pulitzer Prize-nominated Clean Energy Exploitations, I'm a policy advisor on energy literacy for the Heartland Institute and for the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And a little bit about the company, PTS Advance. I founded it in 95 to provide staffing augmentation to the energy sector. Uh, today, PTS Advance is doing that nationwide to the entire energy sector in the entire country, as well as staffing to the um, life sciences sector. So uh, the company has, has grown tremendously. I spend most of my time writing opt-in articles and books, and um, the business is being run by my two sons, and I'm CEO, and I just monitor what's going on, and I'm writing, and Newsom and Biden are making me work overtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as long as uh, as long as the Democrats are in power, I guess I've got some job security because there's always something to write or research. Uh, though, you know, I was always writing and research under Trump. So uh, the job goes on. Ron, uh, it turns out, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of interesting that I, I come back to you right now because it's almost a year since we've spoken. Uh, you were at our yeah. uh, climate conference in October last year, and that's when you released your book. And uh, I interviewed you about it. Before we go on to your more recent writings, tell us a little bit about clean energy exploitation since you mentioned it. Well, yeah, the book is Clean Energy Exploitation. It basically is helping citizens understand the environmental and humanity abuses that support clean energy. Uh, It does uh, discussion of the lack of transparency to the environmental degradation and humanity atrocities occurring in developing countries countries that have yellow skin, black skin, brown skin people. Uh, these are the countries where they're mining for these exotic minerals and metals. And these countries have no environmental laws and no labor laws. And it is uh, just a ethical, moral, and social responsibility uh, subject we're trying to bring transparent to the public. You know, interestingly, you should bring that up about labor laws. I just saw today... That, uh, let me see, I want to find this because I think it's important. So, um, where is this? Oh, yes. So, it seems the Department of Labor 
is going to, uh, it's adding lithium ion batteries to a list of goods made with materials known to be produced with child or forced labor. That's going to impact, you know, Biden's got this huge push for electric cars. I mean, it's enormous. Uh, California wants to get rid of all vehicles that aren't driven by electricity by 2035. And yet it is known by the U.S. Department of Labor to be built upon the backs of child and slave labor. And that's going to make it, I believe, probably harder to get uh, to reach those goals. Sterling, you're 100% correct. In fact, I, I envision the subsidies that they offer people to buy EVs is basically financial incentives to continue the environmental degradation and the atrocities. You know, it's okay because we don't see it. You know, it's over there. Yeah, when you're when you're polluting other places, then it's not your problem, right? Exactly. exactly. And yet, and yet, the environmentalists here worry about climate change. Say everything's affected by everything else. You know, butterfly's wing causes a hurricane, whatever. Uh, but somehow. Uh, when the technologies that are promoting for the West to to uh, to uh, decarbonize the the West uh, are polluting in other places, they they are silent. I wish people would uh, get the book, read it, because uh, after writing the book, uh, I've made a personal decision. It's just my personal decision. I will not buy an EV, and I will not buy an EV for ethical reasons. Because after writing the book, I know where the lithium's coming from. And I'm not willing to financially support that environmental degradation and humanity atrocities. I think it's unethical and immoral. And uh, I personally won't do it. If the next person wants to buy their EV, that's up to them. But that's my decision. Well, you know, um, uh, personal anecdote of my own I know two people, one of them being my mother who bought hybrid vehicles, right? So it's partly driven by batteries, partly by gasoline. Um, her batteries went out. And uh, so she's still driving the thing because she's got to. She didn't have the money because she chucked into replacing the battery pack and the labor and all the work that was going to be done on it to, to get that done cost more than an engine of a car. It cost $7,000 is what they wanted to charge her to replace the battery pack and to do some of the other labor that needed to be done. 5000 for the yep. uh, battery pack and the labor for putting that in alone, another 2000 for some other things. But the point is, I'm sorry, I could change out my transmission for that. I could get a whole, whole new engine for that. Um, she cannot now resell this car because it's, it's worth less than the cost of repairing it. And you know what? There's a lot of people who are waking up to this fact. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting because the auto industry really survived and survives by the resale market. Because most people don't buy new cars, they buy used cars. In the EV market, there is a resale market. You're not going to buy a used EV. And so it's it's, uh, it's going to be tough on, on the auto industry. Well, it, you know, the auto industry is digging their own bed. They could just say no. There's no law that says they must end the use of internal combustion engines. They're doing that on their own to satisfy, and we'll get to this, California largely. But you know what? California is only one state, and it may be the most populous state, but it's not the only populous state. And they could just tell tell California, sorry, we're not, we're going to either develop a, a whole line just for you and the states that want to adopt your policies, and we're going to keep 
churning out industri- uh, internal combustion engines and vehicles that use them because you know what? That's what most people want. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, Ford's touting its electric truck and they've just had a series of videos and things showing the electric trucks can't haul anything. Well, I know, I know a lot of truck owners in Texas that don't have much use for a truck that can't haul anything that, you know, stops running when it battery runs out as it tries to get off the line hauling something. That's right. That ain't going to sell. And so my point is, if automakers continue to go down this path of we're getting rid of all the cars that are successful and only going to sell the cars that we can't sell, that, you know, people don't want the the 2% of cars that people are buying you know, that's that's the electric car market. If they're only going to sell those, they're going to lose a lot of sales. It's it, you know, everyone's going to be driving used cars for years. We'll be the yeah. vintage car capital of the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, you know, in a couple in, in in a decade, we'll look like Cuba, right? Um, that's right. So, Ron, California's policies have an unjustified and inordinate impact on the rest of the nation. I know you follow the state's policies very closely and have written about what's going on there in a number of articles recently. Let's take some questions one by one. How have California Democrats gotten away with undermining the state's energy infrastructure, leaving residents and businesses in the dark each summer while still pushing ever stronger restrictions on fossil fuels? You know, how does this happen? Why, why haven't people woken up? Well, California is, I call it a one-party state, you know, totally Democratic. Uh, California Governor Newsom became further convinced that voters continue to support his bizarre energy policies when they defeated the uh, recall election last year and, uh, you know, want to keep him in an office until the term ends in 23. And with California having the highest prices of fuel in the nation and the highest poverty and homeless rates, and barely able to keep the lights on, you know, because of its climate policy bite on the electrical grid, you know, Gavin Newsom is undaunted. You know, with his ego at an all-time high, uh, I think a, a couple weeks ago, he signed 40 new climate bills to ramp up California's green energy shock experiment under the same citizens that defeated the recall. Newsom does not realize that wind turbines and solar panels cannot manufacture anything for society. All they do is generate electricity, and that's dependent on the weather. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, pretty in, soon. In, in, pre- Newsom, in Newsom's all-electric world, Newsom believes, ironically, he really believes the products and fuels manufactured from fossil fuels, which are supporting all the infrastructures, all the lifestyles, all the economies, which did not exist before 1900, he believes they're dangerous and polluting is causing dangerous climate change. In Newsom's all-electric world, Newsom believes that all the infrastructure developed in less than two centuries from the products manufactured from crude oil are not needed by future societies. Because without fossil fuels, we're going to lose medical, electronics, communications, many transportation infrastructures like the airlines, merchant ships, automobiles, trucks, military about, programs. About 6,000 products at least. At, at, at least, yes, yeah. minimum. And so but the best thing about getting get rid of fossil fuels is with ground Air Force One. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, gosh, the, the, you talk about, I've seen these, these armored vehicles that the president and other dignitaries go around in. Can you imagine how much heavier those vehicles are going to be when they're all done by, by battery power? <laughs> they'll and, sink, uh, they'll they sink, were, they'll were, sink through the concrete. Especially on the warm asphalt, yes. Yeah, I mean, they'll you know, just... with Biden, I mean, with Newsom, you know, climate change may impact humanity. But being mandated to live without the products manufactured from oil, that it'll necessitate lifestyles being mandated back to the horse and buggy days of the 1800s. Yeah, a lot. Can only lead, it can only lead back to shorter lifespans, diseases, malnutrition, weather-related deaths resulting from elimination of those fossil fuels that are now benefiting society. Yeah, along with the diseases, like you say, the malnutrition, along with the diseases and death that come along with it, right? Food spoilage because we can't use refrigeration uh, or can't rely on it. Uh, <laughs> you know, just all yeah. sorts of diseases, the medicines, uh, you know, higher infant mortalities, higher uh, deaths of women uh, during childbirth because, well, uh, if you, you, you can't go to a hospital at night if it's not operating because it doesn't have power to have an emergency childbirth. So you're in trouble. Uh, you know, cancer fighting things, uh, all the technologies that we have today that rely on reliable power. You just can't have it. And, you know, the funny thing is you say he keeps moving forward with this. But, of course, in late August, early September, uh, a week after they signed a bill saying you got to get rid of all uh, internal combustion engines by 2035, you got to have all electric, they then st- – sent out a notice telling people not to charge their electric vehicles because the grid might collapse. So we want more of these things on the grid, but we can't maintain the one, the very few that we have on the grid uh, today. In addition, Early. the same week, yes. the same week, he uh, signed a bill to keep a nuclear plant open that they had been pushing for decades to close because the grid was collapsing. And he signed bills waiving environmental uh, waving clean air and clean water laws, allowing people to use diesel generators and trucks to burn their engines while they're uh, in port rather than hooking up to the grid because they wanted to keep the lights on. So uh, well, they just I, don't I, understand how Sterling, electricity works. Sterling, I think both of those actions were he needed the votes uh, because, you know, Diablo Canyon comes down in a couple of years. I mean, he, he, he hasn't given it a expensive lifespan in just a couple of years because, you know, life without oil is not as simple as Newsom may think. There's neither, you know, renewable energy, which is only intermittent electricity from breezes and sunshine, and neither, neither wind turbines nor solar panels can manufacture anything for society. You know, the unintended consequences of Newsom attempting to rid California and the world of crude oil usage, they're being realized in supply shortages, and soaring prices and perpetuity. The elimination of the products and the fuels manufactured from crude oil, it's just going to impose shortages and inflation uh, on all California residents, inclusive of the residents that defeated the recall last year. Yeah, but it, but as I mentioned earlier, it goes beyond California because California's automobile emission rules, they, they were allowed a Clean Air Act waiver, do they spell the death sentence for the auto industry or at least consumer choice of and satisfaction with cars and trucks? You know, because it's not just California. A lot of states initially signed on to California's uh, Clean Air Act uh, 
provisions, and now they might be uh, calling for uh, the end of. of uh, well, Still, you're right. Uh, there's there's a big dark cloud, and I think the auto industry has basically been mandated into a debt spiral. Couple things, you know, where are the batteries? You know, there's there's a race to produce more lithium in the United States, but they're not going to have strip mining in the United States. <laughs> lithium is, is already being compromised internationally. There's dark clouds in, in Chile where I think half of the uh, lithium is. The locals basically spoke up and says, hey, this strip mine is not going to be in our backyard. And the Supreme Court agreed and shut it down. That's half the lithium in the world. And initiative, initiatives around the world to open mines and what processing plants are causing public uproar. And it's, they're just shutting down. The European Chemical Agency, uh, they're about to classify lithium compounds as dangerous to human health. <laughs> and then you got, so, so, and then you got, so Europe will be without cars and cell phones and computers and all those things that rely on lithium ion batteries. So right. Europe really is got, going yeah. into the dark ages. Right. And then another dark cloud on the auto industry. Where are the buyers? The current EV ownership profile is elite people, highly educated, highly compensated, multi-car families with low mileage requirements for the family's second car. And it's dramatically different from, you know, vehicle owners that have single cars. They need a workhorse. They're not, most of them not highly educated, not highly compensated. And mandating a change to even ownership and forcing austerity may face a rebellion from those that need transportation. And that will probably come up in 2035. And then you talk about, talk about transportation of the EVs. How do you get them here? Because in 2019, China, Japan, India, Germany, South Korea, they manufactured 50 million vehicles compared to 11 million manufactured in America. Now, bear in mind, okay, all these cars are being manufactured over there. How do you get them here? If you recall, in early March, there was a cargo ship that caught fire off the West Coast. And I think it was the Felicity Ace. It was a 650-foot cargo ship that had 4,000 cars on it. These were inexpensive cars. Bentleys, Maseratis, Lamborghinis, 4,000 of them. The, the, The cargo ship burned for three days. The crew members got off safe. But the fire was either caused or contributed by an EV fire, EV battery fire. Yeah. And so now, let's consider your voyage to London. You're not going to be too excited about insuring the next cargo ship because, you know, how do you get those cars from China, Japan, India, Germany, and South Korea? How do you get them from there to here? Oh, but Ron, That's going to be tough. But Ron, we don't have to worry about that, don't you know? Because in the Inflation Reduction Act, the other squeeze on the auto industry it uh, it contains provisions that say the components for these cars and the batteries have to be have to come from components that are manufactured and assembled domestically you know there's the other squeeze you're right we can't get a single mine open here and yet by law these Electric batteries, these EV batteries, lithium-ion batteries, have to come from components produced in the United States. How is that going to work? Right, and yeah, Sterling, you're right. There, you know, lithium mine is strip mining. It is the dirtiest kind of mine around. You know, people think coal mining is dirty. That's clean compared to lithium. 
and it ain't going to happen. Environmentalists aren't going to let it happen. And then, you know, another thing that's really hidden from the public right now is uh, materials for vehicles. Because internationally, there's 700 refineries around the world. They're all old. They're getting, you know, very expensive to maintain. Um, you know, the environmental, social, and governance movement is, you know, divesting in fossil fuels, so it's hard to get money to even, you know, repair them or fix them or modify them. So there, there's projections that of those 700 refineries, about 20% are going to shut down in the next five years. Well, we're talking about, you know, we know crude oil is useless unless you can manufacture it into something usable. And so they're not going to be manufacturing it, so there'll be less parts. All at the same time, world demand is increasing. Well, you've got increasing demand and you're reducing the supply. Well, you know what that means. You've got shortages and inflation in perpetuity. And, you've, and, and what you've really got, because this is the reality of it, is you've got drastically, dramatically higher prices. And so the wealthy uh, can continue to travel because they can afford the higher price vehicles and, and flying on private jets. But average folks and people who are poorer than average, they're stuck at home. And they can't even watch the TV because their power's going out. <laughs> when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Uh, well, you brought you brought up the point about California's grid about uh, you know when they had the heat spill out here, they still you know, said all kinds of things: close the doors, turn your thermostat up, and don't charge your EV. Well, in the UK, I think they've come up with a partial solution. In the UK, they recognize they've got a concern with their stability as well, and so they've implemented uh, something. I think it was in June of this year. If you have a charger in your home uh, or your workplace, it is now automatically switched off during peak load requirements. It's off for nine hours a day between 8 and 11 and 4 to 10. It will not work. And most importantly, that charger is on a separate meter. They know they're going to have to rebuild the grid, and you know who's going to pay for it? The EV owners. So electric rates are going to go sky high um, because, like, someone's got to pay to rebuild that grid. Well, and EV owners yeah. are going to stop buying EV cars if that happens. But the other thing, more recently, with the fall of uh, the Green Prime Minister, um, Boris Johnson, they are also opening up North Sea for new natural gas production and talking about allowing fracking on the mainland of uh, the UK. So that's something California is not doing. You know, they're, they're at least, uh, coming a little bit to their senses over there. So, right. um, and the other, the other cloud over the auto industry is the, uh, this ethical and moral issue with Olympia. You know, the subsidies to purchase those EVs, as I mentioned, they're financial incentives to encourage further exploitation of yellow, brown, and black skinned residents in those developing countries. And, you know, I think the public thing to recognize those subsidies are really not ethical, they're not moral, and uh, like, the social responsibility is, is being exploited. The, you know, in summary, the passion of a few wealthy countries to achieve zero emissions at any cost is going to face major supply chain issues of lithium and body parts, affordability, safety from spontaneous fires, availability and affordability of electricity from breezes and sunshine, 
And the ethical challenges are exploiting these folks in poor countries just for the elites to drive a need be manufactured by the few manufacturers that survived the government-mandated death spiral. And here, there is going to be an impact here, closer to home. Like I said, the truth is the EV mandate will never come into force because we can't manufacture the material that's required by law here. So uh, years after Biden is no longer president and, and Pelosi has gone to, we will hope, her just rewards. Uh, um, other politicians will have to come in and fix the problems they've created because it just fails physics. But um, uh, where was I going with this? In the meantime, um, so I, I, I'm not sure, you know, morally, long term, we're going to have to worry about that because remember, the law says they have to be built here. So unless we're, you know, importing slave labor, that's not going to happen here. So um, That's right. The subsidies will go away because you won't be able to qualify for the subsidy. Yeah, yeah. And if you can't qualify for the subsidy and nobody wants your vehicle, something's going to have to change. Um, so I think, Ron, you tell me if I'm wrong, that all of this net zero emissions, all this stuff, uh, you know, California and beyond, looking at the federal level, it's all just a Trojan horse for a wholesale great reset of society, uh, you know, to fulfill some liberal elites fantasies. What, what you know, what are your thoughts? Uh, I agree. You know, the advocates for a carbon free world, they underestimate not only how many products and fuels are manufactured from crude oil that the world already uses, but how much more the world is yet to demand. You know, there's 80% of the world's living on $10 a day or less. I mean, these people haven't enjoyed the Industrial Revolution yet. You know, in America, there's nearly as many vehicles as people. While in most of the world, fewer than 1 in 20 have a car, more than 80% of the world population is yet to take a single flight. So the, the few wealthy countries have short memories that it's petrochemical products and human ingenuity being the reasons the world populated from 1 to 8 billion in less than 200 years after oil was discovered. Efforts to cease the use of crude oil could be the greatest threat to civilization, not climate change, and lead the world to an era of guaranteed extreme shortages of the fossil fuel products like we had in the decarbonized world of the 1800s. Well, I think, you know, I guess I think they're bound to fail. Uh, you know, um, in the end, voters of the future won't put up with it. And more importantly, there may be many people in many countries that resent the U.S., that don't like what the U.S. represents in many ways. But they all look to us longingly and want what we have as far as materially. China is not looking backwards. They're looking forwards. India is not looking backwards. They're looking forwards. Brazil and the other countries are not looking backwards. They're looking forwards. And they're going to use fossil fuels. And that means that regardless of what we do here or in Western Europe, uh, emissions are going to continue to rise. And so we better get along with the process of learning to adapt with climate change, whatever the cause and whatever form it takes, I think. I agree. You know, if you take a look at the wealthy countries, the you know, America, the UK, Germany, Australia, 
those countries represent maybe 500 million people, which is about 6% of the entire world. In Sterling, you could literally eliminate them. Every person, manufacturing, animal, any person, just wipe them off the face of the earth. And the end result is emissions are going to explode because of China, India, and Africa. They've got thousands of coal-fired power plants, and they're building thousands more. They, they have, they're making $10 less an hour. They don't have enough money to subsidize themselves out of a paper bag. And here, you know, the reason why subsidized wind and solar electricity is not replacing fossil fuels is that they can only generate electricity intermittently. Wind turbines and solar panels cannot manufacture anything for society. In fact, all the parts for wind and solar are made from oil derivatives manufactured from crude oil. Ridding the world of crude oil would eliminate wind turbines, solar panels, vehicles, besides grounding Air Force One. And it's crazy. You know, yet, you know, the, the the climate is changing. It has been for 4 billion years. It will continue to change. And yes, there will be fatalities from the coming climate changes. The climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 additional deaths per year in the next uh, 20 years, you know, from malnutrition and malaria and diarrhea and each stress. However, the irresponsible idea that global warming poses an immediate existential risk to the world that risk would be small in comparison to a world without fossil fuels. You know, with the governments and corporate leaderships attempting to revert to the decarbonized status in the 1800s and before, the wealthy countries continue to focus on subsidizing electricity from breezing sunshine. You know, while simultaneously shuttering coal, natural gas, and nuclear power plants have been providing continuous, uninterruptible electricity, the Trojan horse results are extreme cost, painful reductions in living standards for all but the richest, national weakness, and social instability. Well, and I, you know, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I don't think it's going to have those costs, climate change, imposing, you know, what you said, 250 million additional deaths, because uh, the wider spread use of fossil fuels in the countries where these deaths are likely to uh, supposedly to occur will reduce, will increase crop production and so reduce hunger, malnutrition, and death from starvation as it has done for the past 20 years. I mean, we've, we've, we've had 900 million people <laughs> go out of, uh, hunger and malnutrition over the past 20 years. So I, I just don't see the, the modest climate change is coming increasing the number of deaths from that kind of thing. I think it's going to decrease it substantially as well as decrease the number of deaths from, uh, from uh, temperature related deaths because cold kills more people than heat. And uh, if it, if the, if the winter weather uh, moderates slightly, uh, fewer yeah, people will die during the winter. Still, you're right. I, I believe that uh, climate change is, is a, it's not a problem, it's a challenge. You know, to date, we've eliminated about 98% of weather-related deaths because of the products we have, the clothing, the heating, and air conditioning. Uh, you can live in the Alps year-round and, uh, you know, food supply chains. But, 
Yeah, like I say, I, I think climate change is a challenge. You know, we have, I think there's 20 or 30 cities throughout the world living below sea level, you know, most notably in New Orleans and Italy. And, you know, it's a challenge. You know, when you have uh, those conditions, you can engineer around it. But uh, like I say, I, I think I have 100% confidence in human ingenuity to, to meet those challenges. And, uh, you know, we'll work with what's, uh, you know, given to us on the plate. Well, Ron, uh, as always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. Uh, please tell our listeners how they can get your book. Uh, you can go on my website, energyliteracy.net. Um, my three books are there. It's easy to get it on to um, um, Amazon. And uh, I would like people, my, my biggest wish is people will become more energy literate. You know, the problem, as I mentioned with wind and solar, is they only generate intermittent electricity. They manufacture nothing society. I'm a proponent. I'd love to rid the world of use of oil. But before I jump out of the airplane, I'd like to have a replacement <laughs> that can manufacture the oil revenues that account for those 6,000 products and the fuels that's fueling the 50,000 jets and the 50,000 merchant ships and all the militaries and, um, and, and the space programs. Uh, like I say, you know, we have 8 billion and, and the world is growing. And right now we need those, all those jets and merchant ships to keep moving products and supplies all around the world. Uh, like I say, I think that could be uh, disastrous for uh, mankind. We could lose billions of people without oil. Anyhow, uh, if you go on my website, energyliteracy.net, you could sign up uh, for my energy literacy articles. And um, yeah, like I say, just drop me an email, energyliteracy.net. That tells everything about me. Well, thanks again, Ron. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Ronald Stein and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts other on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. <music>